Scripture reading today will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 10. <clears throat> For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and then fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. For, through, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that, you, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything th uh, through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Good evening, church. Nice to see you. Thank you for the two or three of you that gave me a good effort. That was good. Appreciate that. Um, I want to begin tonight by just mentioning to you that uh, how much I appreciate your, um, your, your patience with, uh, with me recently. I have been noticing as I look across um, uh, the history of some of my sermons lately that they have been growing in their length, and I want to tell you that I'm aware of that. Um, and tell you that I appreciate your patience, and I want to tell you why I'm saying that. Um, uh, usually, sermon length has never been really a problem for me, but as I've, um, over the last few years, tried to become better at the craft of preaching, understand preaching better, grow in preaching, um, uh, there's some things that are playing into that that are making some of the preaching time expand a little bit, and I want to make sure you know that um, uh, so that we can uh, you know, have a positive relationship regarding that. The first thing is, I definitely want, as we preach, as we study together in our scriptures, for there to be a foundation of what we're learning, understanding some of the challenges of what we're learning, and then ultimately how Christ solves that. There's three major movements in a sermon that I want to try to do with you each time we preach, and um, as I'm trying to do that better, sometimes that makes the length of the sermon expand a little bit farther, but I can assure you that as um, I improve my craft and I become better, maybe one of the things I'll learn is brevity. Um, that being said, um, the other aspects that are playing into this most certainly are uh, our love for you, my love for you, and my concern that we uh, understand as we move forward the deep importance of what we're talking about. Um, this isn't just for us an intellectual exercise. Um, we're not just buying our time or checking off some things we need to do. We pray for you, we think about you, we um, um, uh, discuss with you and most certainly want the sermons to be beneficial for you. So I want you to know that um, I appreciate your patience and um, I, I appreciate your feedback and your support as we work through this, um, uh, the sermons that we're talking about. So tonight we're going to continue our series on the way of salvation. Um, it's been a joy to work with you through this material as we talk about the, you know, the steps of salvation as they've been so often called in our fellowship. Um, as we are transitioning into calling them, hopefully, instead of steps, practices of salvation, things that we engage in, things that we work on together. And these are practices that you begin to do as a believer in Christ and never stop doing. The practice of hearing, 
the practice of believing, the practice of confessing. And tonight we're going to talk about the practice of repenting. These are things that as believers in Christ, you pick up and begin to do. And if you want to walk the journey of salvation, you don't stop doing these things. And so we're hopefully trying to introduce those who are not currently doing these things to these practices. And if you are someone who is a Christian, but maybe grown cold or a little bit dusty in your faith, um, hopefully you'll be able to pick these back up and begin to practice them so that you and I can walk on the journey to salvation. Tonight, as I said, we're going to talk about repentance. And this is where the real work of Christianity starts to really happen. This is where you start to see fruit in your life. Um, It takes time, it takes effort, it takes work, it takes investment. But the practice of repentance is where you take things that you're learning, things that you're confessing, and you begin to see the inner changes, the working happening in your life where you become actually a different person. The object of Christianity is that you might become like Jesus Christ. The ultimate goal, as John says, is when he returns, we will be like him. That's the end goal of all that we're doing. That you and I would take on the very nature of God that we were originally designed in. And repentance is the practice that you and I need to engage in for that to actually happen. And this is why it marks all of our life. Repentance is more than we can just figure out in one sermon. Um, so there's going to be a lot more. I'm, I'm actually going to do a separate podcast and talk about the process of repentance. Uh, we'll have that on the website for you and make that available later. But tonight, we're going to look at just some of the principles of repentance, what produces repentance, a problem with repentance, and then finally we'll finish with the power. So let's get after it tonight. Let's talk about the principles of repentance. What is repentance? When you hear the word repentance, what, what comes to your mind? What do you think about You know, the best way to understand the word repentance is actually just to dig into the original word that you find in the Greek language. Um, It is actually two words that come together to make one word. And this is very appropriate because repentance involves two things that are happening in you that really define one thing. Um, It makes sense because there are two separate things, but they are unified as one thing. The first part of the word is the word meta, and that word means just to move or to change in your position or your condition. So meta is the very first part of this word, and it means literally to have your behavior change, your life change, that you are once here in this place, and you have now moved to this place behaviorally. So repentance involves behavioral change in your life, that you are now doing things differently than you once were doing things. But the second word is noeo, which means to perceive with your mind, to have understanding. And so what what this is getting at is that your heart actually changes. The way that you perceive sin, the way that you understand life, the way that you perceive with your mind how life should be lived is not just Um, staying the same as a sinful being, but you're just changing your behavior, both of these things coming together is what really repentance is. And so repentance is both a change of your heart that results in a change of your life. And to miss either of these, to take one and not the other, will be to miss what repentance really is, and we will not really experience a changed life, who we are, 
we'll just end up being stuck in a lot of different turmoil of religion. So, for instance, if you constantly feel internally sorry for your sin, if you're constantly stirred up on the emotional or the intellectual or the inside, I'm sorry for what I've done, I can't believe I've done this, and you're constantly turned by that, but your life never changes, you'll just be stuck constantly in an emotional upheaval. You'll always be upset, but your life will never change. But on the other side, if you just modify your behaviors constantly, but nothing inside of you is reconstituted, is changed, that you don't love sin any less, that you don't see Jesus Christ as any more beautiful, you just are modifying your behavior through white-knuckle obedience and has nothing to do with who you are inside, you'll just be religiously bitter the rest of your life. Neither of those isolated are repentance. Just feeling sorry for sin or just modifying your behavior. Neither of those are repentance isolated. Those two things coming together is what repentance really is. And so these two principles is the process of repentance. I like the way that J.R. Packer said it. He said, repentance means turning from as much as you know your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And as your knowledge grows in all three of these points, so your practice of repentance will grow as well. What he was saying was, repentance is to take as much as you know of your sin and turn from it and give as much as you know of yourself currently to as much as you know of God. And as those things continue to grow throughout your life, as you become more and more aware of ways that you're still sinful, as you become more and more aware of who you are internally, and as you become more and more aware of who God is, as those things increase, the practice of repentance continues to grow in your life. You see, repentance is actually the one word definition or process of Romans 12, verse 2, when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's talking about your behavior. Be transformed. Have your life changed by the renewing of your mind. What God wants to do is reconstitute the way that you think about sin and the way that you see him back to your original design, which results in a life that turns from sin and towards, turns towards Christ. That's what true repentance really is. And so when those came to the edge of the Jordan to be baptized by John, and he said, hey, go away and come back when you bear fruit worthy of repentance, what he was saying was, you might be here ready to physically be baptized, but you need to go bear fruit worthy of what real repentance is. And so repentance is the process of Romans 12, verse 2, you and I being transformed by the renewing of our minds, finally working itself out in our system in Christianity. Um, I'm going to explain more on the podcast about this, but I want to just alert you to a writing that was done in the mid-1600s by an old Puritan named Thomas Watson. Um, The the Puritans were well-known for long exegesis of Scripture, and then they would finish with very practical application. And so they um, did some really, really great teaching on some of this stuff. And he wrote, in in their day and age, a pamphlet, but it was about 100 pages, you know, a booklet, on just called Repentance. And I would encourage you to read that. Um, He says there are six things that takes place in repentance. The first being sight of sin, that you actually have to see your sin. The second being sorrow over sin. The third being confession of that sin. The fourth 
being shame of that sin, no longer wanting that sin. The fifth step being hatred of that sin, and the sixth being to turn away from that sin. And we'll go into more detail later about how that works out, but I want to dig into some more stuff tonight. So the key to true repentance is a true motivation. That's what we've got to get into, and our text tonight tells us about that. That's what um, was read for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, was Paul had written some letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth over some problem, and when he sent it by the hand of Titus, immediately he was concerned that he was going to alienate them and he was going to lose them. And he had fears and concerns over this, worrying that they would receive this letter, have grief, but not repent. And when he finds out that they repented, he was, had incredible joy over it. And so what he reveals here is that there's a driver, an engine of real repentance. So if you want real repentance to happen inside of you, if you really want to change, you've got to start not with repentance, but with that which drives your repentance. And Paul said that it is godly grief. Godly grief is the only motivation that will drive real repentance. Now let's clarify a few things. When Paul says the word grief, or as um, I believe Donovan was reading out of a different translation that said the word sorrow, he is not talking about the way that you and I would use the word grief, which is just the universal experience of loss. So anybody can experience grief, whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a Christian or not, you can experience grief in the world if you have something and then you lose that thing that you cherish. That's grief. What he's talking about here is the great sorrow that you experience when you do something that you ought not do. So when you commit a wrong, when you do something that you know you shouldn't do, and you experience sorrow over that wrong, that's the grief that he's talking about. And so he says a godly version of grief will drive godly repentance, which he says leads to salvation and life without regret. Sounds like a, like, like a Nike shirt, right? Like life without regret. Put a swoosh on it, sell it at the Christian stores, and you know, you know they kind of rip off like the... Just kidding. We won't do that. Life without regret. You know what that means? That word regret? Life, finally, without the need to repent. Sound good? He says godly grief will drive godly repentance, which will lead to salvation, which will give you life without regret. This is the engine of internal transformation that will result in the external change that you and I long for. So the question then is, if, if grief is sorrow over sin and we need godly grief, what is godly grief then? It's actually kind of simple. This is the sorrow over sin that comes when you know that you've offended God. Godly grief is the deep sorrow that you experience when you know that you've offended somebody other than yourself, namely God. This is what the prodigal said. When he came to himself, he said, and he rehearsed his speech. He was going home. He was repenting. And in his repentance speech, when he was coming to the Father, he was going to say, and did say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He understood very first that his sin was vertical and then it was horizontal. He understood that his sin was against the creator, first of all, of the universe. And it's not until you realize that you've offended somebody outside of yourself 
that you're affecting somebody outside of yourself, that you really will have the motivation to change. How often do people get stuck in detrimental behaviors but stay in them because it's not really affecting anybody else? We, we can get in these cycles where we know that we ought not to do the things that we're doing, but if nobody notices and nobody is affected and nobody cares, boy, it's really hard to drum up the desire to change what we're doing. Think about like maybe dietary questions, right? It's not until somebody else comments about your need to change your diet that you finally maybe get some motivation. How often do we make changes when we finally see that we're hurting somebody outside of us? Maybe somebody we love or somebody we care about. And here, when he's talking about godly grief, knowing that we've offended God, here is where our major problem with repentance comes. So follow me on this. Godly grief is not the only kind of grief that Paul talked about in this text. You see, as I mentioned before, the grief here is not the universal grief that all people experience. He's talking about Christians. He said, you people in Corinth are Christians, and when I sent this letter to you, I knew you were going to have grief. What I was worried about was whether it was going to be godly grief or worldly grief. And so he knew that these Christians were going to experience grief. He didn't know if it was going to be godly or worldly. Again, this is not saying all people experience. This is, this is an experience only for people that are trying to be Christians. Okay? And so he says, our main problem here is worldly grief. You see, one grief leads to repentance, salvation, and life. The other leads to death, verse 10 says. This is a limited sorrow, as I said, to the experience of sin. Sorrow over sin that will actually lead us not to life, to death. This is our great danger in practicing religion. You can experience sorrow over your sin. You can appear very religious and still be on a pathway to death, eternal death. That's what he's saying. That there is a sorrow over sin that you commit. And there is an appearance of religion, maybe a confession, maybe tears, maybe weeping. And that can still lead you to what Paul says, death. The engine that drives this is, he says, grief that comes from the world. So what does this mean? In simplest terms, again, worldliness. When he says grief that comes from the world, what he's talking about is grief that comes from the way the world works, the system of the world. Worldliness is basically defined as this. Life with me at the center. You see, that's the ultimate system that the world operates under. And grief over sin that comes from the world, even if it appears to be honorable, true, real sorrow, will still lead us to death if you are just grieving in a worldly way, meaning your life's still at the center. How is that? You see, this is when we experience grief over our sin because of what it's going to do to us. It has nothing to do with what it does to God. This might be, um, this is still, as I said, sorrow that is self-centered. And so when you and I still remain at the center of our own world, and we do something that we wish we wouldn't have done, we have sorrow over that, here's what it looks like when you live with self at the center, but you still experience grief and religion. First of all, you feel sorry over your sin because of most likely the pending consequences that you're going to face. Maybe you've um, lost 
a bit of your reputation. Maybe you've done something and people look at you differently now and you're sorrowing over the fact that people look at you differently now. Maybe they say, oh my goodness, how could he or she do that? And you have great sorrow over how people now look at you. That's worldly sorrow. Or maybe you have sorrow over loss of an opportunity. Maybe you've done something um, maybe you shouldn't have done or maybe you've committed a sin and now in the future you've lost an opportunity that you're not going to be able to get back. And to have a deep sorrow over that without understanding a sorrow that comes from God still keeps us at the center. And here's what happens. When you remain at the center of your life and all you feel is sorrow over what you've lost in your sin, that will drive you to use repentance to simply atone for yourself to get back what you've lost. What you'll do is you'll say things like, I'll do this to make up for uh, my reputation. Okay, I've done something here. Now you think of me less. I'm going to do seven things over here to re, um, build up my reputation in front of you so you think of me better and I fixed myself through my repentance. Or maybe you've done something wrong and you've lost something and you say, I'll make up for this lost opportunity by doing ten other things this way so that now I'll get that opportunity back. If that's the cycle you're under, your repentance will constantly lead you to death, not life. Ultimately, what this does, when you remain at the center of your life and your sorrow is over what you've lost, has nothing to do with God. It will make the experience of exposure to your sin and repentance constantly traumatic. You see, when you live this way, you won't be able to handle being wrong. You won't be able to handle losing something that you want because of your sin. You see, this will increase your self-defensiveness and it will increase your self-denial, which ultimately will lead you away from ever really truly repenting. Repentance is when you finally see sin as offensive to God because of who He is and what He's done for you. And when you have sorrow over the way that you may have soiled His name or offended His grace, that's true repentance. To be confronted with sin, with yourself at the center of your world, and not Christ will literally lead you to death. This is why non-religious people don't actually even engage in repentance. They don't live in a world where they think they ought to change or repent. And why religious people, without the gospel, will either become incredibly arrogant or incredibly deflated. You'll either be overinflated, constantly denying your sin, inflating yourself, or you'll be constantly deflated, aware of your sin, but no understanding of what, how it can be fixed. Both still have self at the center. So what's the strength? How are we going to overcome this? How are we going to get to a godly grief that will actually change our life? The power is found somewhere else outside of us. We have to go back to the path of salvation, what we've talked about so far. We've said that there are three practices already for the path of salvation. One is hearing, the second is believing, and the third is confessing. But what are you supposed to hear, believe, and confess? On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, he was transfigured, and there was Elijah, Jesus, and Moses before them. And Peter said, Lord, should we make a tabernacle for all three of you? And a cloud came over all of them, consumed them, And a voice from heaven was God, and it said to those men, This is my Son, hear Him. 
In John chapter 8, when Jesus was being confronted about his identity and who he was and people were denying his um, deity, he said, unless you believe that I am he. Pay very close attention to this. Jesus said, hear him. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he. The wording is important. Listen to the third one. Matthew 10, Jesus said to his disciples that if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. What do these have in common? What does the language have in common? You see, you've got to hear what is true. You've got to believe what is true. And you've got to confess what is true about the person of Jesus. Not just his teachings, but his identity. You see, Christianity, your faith, your salvation rests first and foremost, 100% on the person of Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did. You see, what he said, what he taught only comes into play in your life after you believe who he is. This is a major mistake that people make in the world today. I talk to people all the time who will sit down and say, listen, um, I, I appreciate who Jesus was, and there are certain things about what he has said that I believe, but I just can't accept certain teachings of him, and so I've got to reject Christianity because there are some teachings about Jesus, like what are popular today, caring for the poor and the marginalized, that I like, but there are also some teachings about Jesus that I don't like, specifically his sexual ethic. One man, one woman, sex only in the bond of marriage. People don't like that conservative teaching of Jesus, but they love the liberal teaching of social justice. But before you ever get to the teaching of Jesus, you've got to get to the person of Jesus. When he says, hear him, what he's saying is, do you know who he is? When he says, believe that I am he, he's not saying, believe, you know, section six, verse four of this. He's saying, do you believe that I'm he, I'm God? And when he says, confess me, he's saying, do you confess before all people that Jesus Christ didn't just teach good things, but was the Son of God? Here's what I've seen in my life. When people hear, believe, and confess that Jesus, his identity, that was God, those people that hear, believe, and confess that have very little problem with what Jesus has to say. Very little problem. They have very little problem bringing themselves under submission to the teaching of Jesus when they realize who he was, that he was God. You see, the identity of Jesus Christ will cripple your pride and it will destroy any walls of self-defense that you build. The person of Jesus will stand face to face with you, sitting on the throne of your own heart and he will make you bow your head in front of him. First in humiliation that you would sit in his seat. The person of Jesus stands looking you in the face and he says, you're sitting in my seat. And you know that you're on your throne of your own life. You will bow your head in humiliation. But the second thing you'll do is you'll bow your head in adoration. That he would come back to take the seat again. You're telling me that Jesus, after I booted you off this throne that you'd be willing to come and to give all of your life, your agony, you'd suffer rejection and humiliation to win back a seat that already belonged to him. And when he came, he doesn't, and when he comes back to the throne that is on your heart and sees you sitting there, 
He doesn't just cast you off and boot you out and criticize you and throw you out of his presence. He grabs you by the hand and leads you down the steps and says, son or daughter, you're never meant to sit there. You can't handle the seat. But I've come to prove to you that I can sit there. And if you'll let me sit there and regain my position on the throne, you'll understand how life was always meant to be. And when you see Jesus Christ for who he is and what he has done to regain that throne, when you sin, you can't ever think of hurting that one that would do so much for you. And when it wounds you internally for hurting him, it will begin to change you externally how you live. You see, you'll never repent, truly repent to have internal and external change if you stay at the center of your life. You just won't. You'll feel sorrow because of what you've lost, but you'll be a cycle of selfish death until this life is over. Until Jesus Christ comes standing face to face to you and you ask yourself, what do I really think about Jesus? There's an old song I loved to sing when I was a kid. It says, what will you do with Jesus, my friend? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking a friend, what will he do with me? He's standing, staring at your throne, watching you sit on it and saying, are you going to come down and let me sit there? Or are you going to reject me? And if you'll put him there and let him be there, the process of repentance will begin to change your life forever. We want to help you do that. You can come as we stand and sing.